You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Do you ever consider all that's going on in the world on a macro level and find that it has a tendency to depress you? I found that uh, this week, though there may not have been any historic news items, was kind of a, a week that had a steady stream of depressing news and headlines. And so earlier in the week, I log on to Twitter. That's probably my first mistake. <laughs> and I see a tweet from City News Kitchener that says this. Nearly one in four local public school kids self-identify as part of the 2SLGBTQIA community. One in four, that's nearly 25% of local public school kids identifying with some depraved sexual orientation, uh, orientation and gender identity. And the rates are far lower if you compare it to the larger population. So there's something new going on here. Kids are being groomed and socially pressured into these self-identifications. And we're in uncharted territory here. We don't know where this is going to all lead. It makes you wonder what kind of a world are our kids growing up in? What kind of a world are our kids' kids going to grow up in? And how much more depraved are things going to get? So that was earlier in the week. Later in the week, I listened to a podcast. It was helpful on economics. But of course, as I listen to this podcast, I'm reminded of the absolutely devastating state that our economy is in right now, right? Astronomical debt levels, rapidly increasing interest rates, high inflation. A short while after that, a friend shares a link about how increasingly unaffordable housing and renting is becoming. And a little while after that, I see another headline about how church attendance is dramatically falling across this country. Perhaps we know the reasons why, but it's still sad, isn't it? And so when you step back and you consider all of these issues and trends in the larger culture, it's hard not to have some kind of a reaction. And so some may get angry, some may be fearful, perhaps some might be anxious. I think many are just growing apathetic and numb, and something that would have absolutely shocked them five years ago is just... You know, another headline and a list of headlines today. But I found myself this week a little depressed, if I'm honest with you, considering all, all of this, especially that tweet that I read earlier on. Very sad. And then I come to Psalm 114. And I realized that what I needed most in that moment of depression, other than to get off of Twitter... What I needed more than that, though, was a fresh reminder of the power and the supremacy and the glory of God. I needed a fresh glimpse of God and all his majesty and glory so that I might put things in proper perspective. Oftentimes, I believe depression and anxiety and even spiritual apathy, they're directly connected to what primarily occupies our thoughts and our attentions. And so if we give more thought and focus to the enemy and to the chaos that he's causing in our world, then, of course, yes, we're going to be depressed. We're going to be anxious. 
And this is why constantly consuming the news or scrolling through Twitter tends to not be a very helpful thing to do. The antidote then to this is to refocus our attention on the glory and on the power of God. To take our minds off of the chaos and to focus on the one who's sovereign over the chaos. And this is what Psalm 114, I believe, helps us to do. Scholars believe this psalm may have been written to the people of God when they were in exile in Babylon or perhaps shortly after in the post-exilic period. And so it likely would have been written to a people who knew what it was like to live in a foreign land, to live in a land that was not their own, that was not their home. They knew what it was like to be in a seemingly hopeless and chaotic situation. And especially if it was written to those who were still in exile... What they needed most in this situation was a fresh reminder of the power and the glory of God, lest they forget. And so really that's the focus of the psalm. This morning's sermon will be a little bit different as we work our way through this psalm. It'll be different from the sermons that were preached on Psalm 71 or Psalm 119 over the last few Sundays. Because first off, this psalm's not written in the first person. Those psalms were written in the first person, so you're not going to see the pronoun I anywhere in this psalm. Those psalms, the application tends to be, follow the example of the psalmist. The psalmist was in this desperate situation. Here's how he got out of it. Here's how he trusted the Lord. Follow his example. The psalmist pursued the Lord in his word, delighted in his word. Follow the example of the psalmist. That's not really the case in this psalm. In addition to that, there's really only one imperative in this psalm. Okay, that's it. There's one command, there's one expectation, there's one point of application this morning, and it's simply this. Tremble at the presence of our Lord. Tremble at the presence of the Lord. The psalm calls us to tremble before God when we consider afresh His power and His glory and His sovereignty. To be in awe of God. Don't you forget how powerful He is. Don't you forget how sovereign he is. And sometimes that's all the application we need in a sermon. Sometimes that one point of application is all we need because it, the ripple effects of it, it leads to all kinds of other points of application in our lives. Behold God and tremble. And so as we study this psalm, my hope is that you would do this. You would behold our God this morning in such a way that would cause you to tremble before him with a deepened sense of awe of who he is. And so let me read Psalm 114, and then I'll pray, and we'll continue to look at it together. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back, the mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? O mountains, that you skip like rams? O hills, like lambs? Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning asking that we would hear from your word. We thank you for it, that we can hold a copy of your holy and inerrant word in our hands, translated into a language that we can understand. 
And so, Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. Every word that proceeds from my mouth would receive your anointing. And, Lord, that as your word goes forth, it would accomplish much. Pray that those who are idle in their sin would be admonished. Pray that those who are weak in faith, uh, that they would be helped. Pray that those who are faint-hearted at what's going on in their lives or in the world, that they would be encouraged. Pray that the lost would be brought under conviction of sin and be saved. Pray that the church would be strengthened, Lord. And most of all, would Jesus be brought much glory uh, through the preached word. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So Psalm 71 that we looked at a few weeks ago was a psalm of lament. Uh, Psalm 119, which Pastor Randy took us through, was a psalm of wisdom. The psalm this morning, Psalm 114, is a a psalm of praise. But it doesn't follow the normal structure of a psalm of praise. For example, it's missing the opening call to praise that these psalms tend to have. In the first verse, there tends to be a commandment to praise the Lord. So if you look back at Psalm 113, just one psalm before this one, it's a psalm of praise and it opens in verse 1 with this. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Usually this is what is contained in a psalm of praise, but Psalm 114 seems to omit this. Instead, in our psalm, praise is assumed. As we study this psalm and as we celebrate the power and the glory and the sovereignty of God, the psalmist assumes that we'll inevitably praise the Lord, and so there's not even a command here to praise Him. It's assumed that it's going to happen as we study and understand this psalm. Uh, and this short psalm, even though it's short, it's, it's Hebrew poetry at its best, at its finest. Okay, we'll see it uses personification, it uses suspense, hyperbole, parallelism, and it even uses a little bit of holy trash talk, <laughs> akin to Elijah on Mount Carmel. We'll see that. There are four stanzas that break nicely Breaks the psalm nicely into four parts. You'll see two verses belonging to each stanza. And you'll notice that every verse is symmetrical. And so each statement is in parallel. It says the same thing twice. There are also references in this psalm to the Exodus and to the crossing of the Jordan. As there are in many other psalms in the book of Psalms, such as Psalm 105 and Psalm 135. But this particular psalm has a different focus. It doesn't primarily focus on Israel's enemies and how they were defeated. It doesn't primarily focus on creation. It doesn't primarily focus on God's people, though all those parties are certainly mentioned. Rather, the focus of this psalm is on God and on His supremacy. It's known as a theocentric psalm. That just means it's centered on God. It's all about Him. That's the point. And as it focuses us on God... The psalm calls the reader in verse 7 to tremble before the presence of the Lord. That's the only command. To tremble means to be affected with great fear or awe due to the extreme size or power or greatness of something. Okay, I'll say that again. To tremble means to be affected with great fear or awe due to the extreme size or power or greatness of something. So let me give you a few examples. Imagine you're on the edge of the Grand Canyon. I've never been there, but it it, it looks beautiful in the pictures. Maybe some of you have been there. And you look out over the vastness of the Grand Canyon. It causes you to tremble. Or you're on the the summit of Mount Everest, and you look down at the ground below, beyond the clouds. You can see as far as the eye can see past the horizon. 
and it causes you to tremble. Or perhaps consider the reaction you might have if you found yourself in the presence of a great and powerful king or conqueror. Perhaps you're before the feet of Alexander the Great or something like that. In all of these examples, you would be affected with great awe due to the power and the greatness of that which you're in the presence of. In other words, when in the presence of greatness, one trembles. In the presence of greatness, one trembles. And as we study this psalm together and we consider anew this morning the greatness of our God, we're going to see three reasons why we ought to tremble before Him. Why we ought to tremble before the presence of the Lord. And so here's the first. Number one, tremble at His sovereign purpose in the salvation of His people. Tremble at his sovereign purpose in the salvation of his people. Okay, let's look at verse 1 again. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language. And so the psalm begins by drawing our attention to the most significant event in Israel's history. Okay, the Exodus. This would be their defining moment. This is when, really, they were established as a nation. They entered into Egypt as a family. They left Egypt as a nation, a great multitude of people. And so the exodus being so important is referred back to again and again in the scriptures. God's people wanted to regularly remember this event. Because there are certain events in our lives and in the history of a nation that ought to be remembered, ought not to be forgotten. Especially when God moves in a powerful way. But in order for them not to be forgotten, they must be regularly and proactively and intentionally commemorated and rehearsed. And at the top of Israel's list of these kinds of events is the Exodus. And so this psalm actually would have been read in the liturgy before the Passover. And so it had a very important place in the life of Israel as they remembered what God had done. And so what happened in the Exodus? Well, Israel was in bondage to the Egyptians. They were slaves to a people of strange language, it says there in verse 1. They were alienated in a foreign land. And they were completely powerless to deliver themselves. It didn't matter what they did. It didn't matter how much they tried. There was nothing they could do to release themselves from Pharaoh's tyranny. And it's against this backdrop that the sovereign grace and power of God is then put on display. And God miraculously leads his people out of Egypt through a series of miracles. And they all reach their climax in the story at the parting of the Red Sea. When Israel crosses the sea on dry land. And then as they reach the other shore, they turn back and they get to watch as their greatest enemy was drowned and destroyed in that same very sea. And so in one fell swoop, God delivers them and destroys their greatest enemy. It's quite a miracle. And while the psalmist could have chosen to emphasize this great deliverance itself or the destruction of Israel's enemy or the freedom that Israel would now enjoy, that's not what the psalmist primarily focuses on. Rather, he focuses on the sovereign purpose of God in this great salvation. So look at verse 2. Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. This was the purpose, and I want you to notice the parallelism. We've already kind of seen it. So in verse 1, Israel and the house of Jacob are in parallel. They're, they're the same, referring to the same group of people. 
Egypt and a people of strange language. That's referring to the same group of people. And here in verse 2, it's the same thing. Judah and Israel are referring to the same group of people. And so some might come to verse 2 and think, oh, this must be talking about the two kingdoms when Israel got divided and you had the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, but that's not actually why it's broken up this way. Rather, Judah is meant to refer to Israel, to refer to the people of God. Judah is the chief tribe, and so sometimes the Bible, when referring to Judah, is actually referring to all of the people of God, all 12 tribes, because it represents them. And so when you see verse 2, think of it as the people of God became his sanctuary, the people of God became his dominion. And so if verse 1 tells us what happened, verse 2 tells us why it happened. God redeemed his people for a purpose, to make them into something. He led them out of Egypt. Israel went out of Egypt. The house of Jacob went out from a people of strange language. Why? So that they might become God's sanctuary and God's dominion. His sanctuary refers to his holy place where he dwells. That's what that means. And his dominion refers to his domain where he rules. So his holy place where he dwells, his domain where he rules over his subjects. A few weeks ago when we looked at Psalm 71, one of the words that was translated refuge could also have been translated home. And so we saw that as Christians we ought to make God our home. But here incredibly in Psalm 114 we're told that God has saved his people in part so that he can make them his home, them his holy dwelling place. And this terminology in verse 2, even though it's here in the Old Testament, it certainly reminds us of what his purpose is for us, God's people in Jesus, in Christ. His purpose in redeeming us from sin is not only to save us from wrath by the blood of Jesus, it's not only to spare us from condemnation that we deserve for our rebellion against him, though praise the Lord that he's done that. It's not only to set us free from our slavery to sin, but his purpose in our salvation is also that we might become his holy and obedient people. The holy place that he dwells among and the subjects that will live in obedience to him. His sanctuary and his dominion. And the New Testament picks up on this theme here in several places. One example would be 1 Peter 2 verses 4 to 5, which says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, stones are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Okay, this is the purpose for which he's called us, that we would be a holy people in God's house uh, to dwell among. And the, this verse from 1 Peter not only echoes Psalm 114, but also what God said to the Israelites after he led them out of Egypt. In Exodus 19.6, he says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so why did God save you? Well, in part, so that he could take residence in your heart, in your life, sanctify you, and cause you to be his holy and obedient people, and to live according to his rule. I'll give you one more passage. Ephesians 4, verses 14 to 19 speaks about how God takes residency in our heart. It's a beautiful passage. It says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, 
Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So why has God saved you if you believe in Jesus? So that Christ may dwell in your heart to sanctify you and cause you to be full of the fullness of God. You are to be his sanctuary and his dominion. Okay, this is his sovereign purpose. This is his prerogative. This is why he has saved you. And I want you to notice and to know that Israel didn't ask to be God's dominion and his sanctuary. They're, they're passive in these first two verses. God made them into his dominion and sanctuary. In fact, Israel didn't even ask God to be his people. He unilaterally chose them far before the events of the Exodus even happened, far before they even found themselves in slavery in Egypt. They were unilaterally chosen by God. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And so he chose them and he called them out of Egypt for his own purposes, according to his own sovereign will and his own good pleasure. And so some might say in response to that, well, why does he choose Israel and not Egypt? How come Israel is, are the ones that get to miraculously be led and saved through the Red Sea, and yet the Egyptians are the ones who are destroyed by that very sea? Why does he choose some to make his sanctuary and dominion and not others? This is a question that many come to ask when they're confronted with the sovereignty of God. And what some have done is they've tried to come up with a philosophical answer to that tension, to, to the sovereignty of God, how this works. But what I tend to do is simply quote Romans 9.20 in my response to such a question. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? You're the clay. He's the potter. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use? In God's sovereignty, he, he decided to show his wrath to Egypt and to show his mercy to Israel. And so that's what he did. This was his divine prerogative. This was his sovereign purpose. As we consider that and perhaps some wrestle with that, at the end of the day, we just have to remember we're the created. He's the creator. Okay, And so by definition, he can do as he pleases with us. So if he wants to make us into his holy people that submits to his rule, then so be it. All praise to him. And so rather than questioning God, instead as a piece of clay, we need to come to the point where we simply take a step back and we stand in awe of the potter. We stand in awe of his sovereign grace and his redeeming power. And if you're a Christian, how could you not but stand in awe of the fact that he chose you? He chose little old you to come and to take up residency in your heart and to change you from the inside out, and to make you a part of his holy nation. Why? Well, not because of anything that you've done, not because you're better than someone else or you're wiser or more intelligent or able to comprehend truth better than someone else, not because he foresaw that you would choose him. No, simply according to his sovereign purpose. 
to his good pleasure. He is the only sovereign. And so just stand in awe of him. Behold the potter and tremble before him. The other thing I want to emphasize before we move on is that if you're a Christian, you need to remember that the purpose for which he's called us is that we might be his holy and obedient people, his sanctuary and his dominion. And so I have to ask you, are you pursuing holiness in your life right now? Does your life look increasingly different? Are you increasingly being set apart from the world? Are you actively putting off the old man? Are you putting off sin? Are you putting off anger and sexual immorality? Are you putting off greed and selfishness and idolatry? And in, its, in their place, are you putting on righteousness? Are you putting on humility and service and love and self-control? Okay, and if you take a step back and you reflect and you think, no, my life is not changing the way it ought to be. I'm not pursuing holiness the way I ought. Well, if there isn't much change in your life, if there isn't much growth in holiness, then maybe there's not enough trembling before the Lord. Maybe that's the solution to your problem. Take the Lord a little bit more seriously. After all, Philippians 2 verse 12 calls you to work out your own salvation with fear and what? And trembling. And so this morning, what an opportunity. Consider afresh the power and glory and holiness of God this morning and then start living accordingly. Take your sin seriously. Pursue holiness as you contemplate who he is and as you tremble before him. The Bible teaches us that the more we behold the glory of God, the more we'll be transformed from one degree of glory to another. That's why sometimes this is all the application we need. Focus on God, tremble before Him, behold Him, you'll be transformed. Beholding and trembling leads to transformation and holiness. And so if there's no transformation or holiness, maybe there's not enough trembling. Tremble at His sovereign, pur his sovereign purpose and the salvation of His people. Number two, tremble at his surpassing power over all creation. Tremble at his surpassing power over all creation. Uh, the next few verses of our psalm uses personification. Okay, that just means that the psalmist is taking things that are not people, so inanimate objects, parts of creation, and speaking to them as though they are people, as though they have their own personalities. So look at verses 3 to 4. It says, <clears throat> the sea looked. Now, seas can't look because they don't have eyes. Just, just in case you didn't know. The sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams. The hills like lambs. So the sea looks and flees. The river turns back. The mountains and hills skip. Okay, this is personification. And the psalmist is using this tool to simply proclaim the surpassing power of God over all salvation. The sea in verse 3 is uh, most certainly referring to the Red Sea, which was parted during the Exodus. And then the Jordan in verse 3 refers to the Jordan River. And this introduces us to a new event in salvation history where the Israelites crossed again on dry land across the Jordan River to enter into the Promised Land. It's a very similar miracle. And so these two events, the Exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, and the parting of the Jordan, are both referred to uh, together throughout the scriptures because they're similar. So this is still parallelism going on here. 
Joshua 4, verse 23, for example, says, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for for us until we passed over. And so there's two similar miracles where God parts the waters and shows his sovereignty over them on both occasions. But our text uses different imagery than the original accounts of these miracles use in Exodus and in Joshua. They tend to speak of the water being pushed back and piled up and forming walls. Whereas here in verse 3, the waters aren't pushed back to form walls, but rather they see the Lord and they flee. It's almost as though they run from him as soon as he shows up on scene. It's emphasizing his supremacy over the waters. And one of the things we need to know is that in the ancient Near East, the waters metaphorically represented chaos. And so they were, they were synonymous, really, with chaos, because the sea is, was mysterious and unknown to them and chaotic, and in many ways it still is to us today. And so there were other religious traditions that suggested that anyone who could conquer the waters would then have to be divine. And it kind of makes sense when you think about it, why they thought this way. Okay, just think about the sheer power of the sea and of the ocean. Okay, think about tidal waves or massive tsunamis and their destructive force and the power that they contain. No one can stop them. Think about the size of the sea, the volume of water, the depths of the ocean. If you've ever been out on the ocean, it's it's both amazing and terrifying at the same time if you're so far out that you can't see shore and you just see water all around you. It gives you a picture of how vast the ocean is. And there's so much about it we don't even know. It's mysterious. It's chaotic. But what happens to this powerful force of nature when God shows up on the shores of the Red Sea and on the banks of the Jordan River? What happens? The waters immediately turn back and flee. They flee. And the the word there for turn back and flee is often used in Scripture in military situations. In fact, it's actually used in Exodus 14 to speak of the Egyptian soldiers. But here in verse 3, the battle is not between God and the Egyptian soldiers. The battle here is between God and the waters. And unfortunately for the waters, it's not a fair fight. Because God is the one that created the waters. Isaiah 40, verse 12 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of your hand? Okay, so everyone hold out your hand. Look at the hollow of your hand for a second. Okay, imagine how much water you could hold in the hollow of your hand. Maybe a few drops, then it starts spilling over. You you, you couldn't even hold a cup in the hollow of your hand. I don't care how big your hands are. You couldn't do it. Well, in the hollow of God's hand, he can hold the vastness of the oceans. He can hold every drop of water on this earth and not one will spill over. And so we're called to behold our God. God is sovereign over the chaos of the waters. And perhaps perhaps there's a lot of chaos in your life right now. Maybe there appears to be a lot of chaos in your life or certainly there appears to be a lot of chaos in the world right now. And if you focus too much on the chaos and on the uncertainty, then it's going to cause you to be anxious and fearful and depressed. And so if that's you, if you're focusing too much on the chaos, here's what you need to do. You need to stop trembling at the chaos and tremble at the one who's conquered the chaos. Tremble at the one who the chaos flees from. 
the one who's sovereign over it. And when you think about it in one sense, to God it's not chaos at all, is it? To us it appears chaotic, it's disorderly, it's uncertain, we don't have control over it. But to God, there's nothing chaotic about it. It's not uncontrollable to him. It's not mysterious. It's not unknown. Everything happening in your life right now and everything happening in the world right now is according to his perfect sovereign plan. Nothing happens outside of his power and control. Not even a sparrow falls outside of his sovereign will, the Bible says. And so we must not tremble at the waters or the chaos. We must tremble at God. We must tremble at God. The psalmist continues in verse 4. Uh, he speaks about the mountains and the hills now. And he says they skip and they prance about like helpless rams and lambs. And so some believe that he may be referring to the Lord at Mount Sinai. But it's not really certain because he doesn't say that. I think it's more just continuing to assert God's surpassing power over all creation rather than referring to a specific event. And so similar terminology, for example, is used in Psalm 29, verse 6, where there the psalmist says, he makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a wild ox. Now, that's not referring to specific events. That's just saying God's sovereign over the nations. And so I believe that's what's going on here. It's saying he's sovereign not over not just the waters, but over the mountains and the hills. In other words, over all creation, from the highest mountaintop to the lowest parts of the ocean, he's sovereign over it all. And then we get to verses 5 and 6. These are somewhat humorous. He says, what ails you, O sea, that you flee? Are you sick? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills, like lambs. Okay, so we have the same four players mentioned here in these two verses as in the last two, right? We have the sea, the Jordan, mountains, and hills. But here the psalmist is mocking them. Okay, he's engaging in a little trash talk, if you will. And he asks them a series of rhetorical questions along the lines of, what's the matter? Are you sick? What are you so afraid of? Why, why are you turning back? Why are you fleeing? Why are you skipping about like a helpless poor little lamb? What's the matter with you? And the interesting thing in these verses is the tense of the verb actually changes. So in verses 3 and 4, it's past tense, a perfect form in the original language. But in verses 5 to 6, it's in the imperfect form, which translates to present tense. So now he's speaking to the sea and the Jordan and the mountains and the hills as though they're still fleeing and turning back, even though these events occurred hundreds of years earlier. So why does he make this shift? Well, he's emphasizing here that God is still as sovereign over creation, over the chaos today as he was back then. His surpassing power hasn't changed, and so all of nature still trembles before him. The commentators of the NIV application commentary uh, pick up on this and they explain, listen to what they say. The distant past of the exodus and creation are made present for the reader. The power of chaos and false gods that threatened Israel when God brought them out of Egypt remain the same forces that continue to threaten the people of God. And just as God's presence caused them to flee and leap in fear in the distant past, so too will his presence hold such powers in check even now. 
Okay, he's sovereign over the chaos of creation now, even as he was back then, and so we need not fret or worry. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've certainly noticed in recent weeks that the climate change talk is ramping up. Okay? Perhaps you've noticed this as well. And it amazes me how often humans speak as though we have the power to control the climate. Okay, that's idolatrous. At its core, that's idolatrous. It's elevating man to a position that only God can take. It's thinking we have more power than we actually have. It's self-idolatry. For example, in an article on the NASA website about climate change, NASA says this. Humans have caused major climate changes. So we could pause there and laugh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Humans have caused major climate changes to happen already. And we have set in motion more changes still because climate change is a truly global, complex problem with, the, with economic, social, political, and moral ramifications. The solution will require both a globally coordinated response and local efforts on the city and regional level. And then they say this, it's up to us what happens next. Okay? Like, hear me out. I, we need to be good stewards of God's green earth. Okay? He's entrusted us with this earth that we might steward it well and take care of it. But to think then that that means we have the power to control the climate, it's asinine and idolatrous. The surpassing power belongs to God and God alone. Psalm 135 verse 7 says this, He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasuries. In other words, he's in control of the climate. And so perhaps climate change alarmists would be, wouldn't be so alarmed if they spent less time trembling at the weather and more time trembling at the one who's sovereign over the weather. There wouldn't be cause for alarm. But really, these verses serve as a rebuke not only to those alarmists, but to all who would reject the Lord and thereby deny his power. They're a rebuke to all who refuse to bow the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, if the inanimate, unintelligent seas tremble, if the inanimate, unintelligent rivers tremble, if the inanimate, unintelligent mountains and hill, hills tremble, then why not you? Why not us? Do you tremble? Do you recognize God's surpassing power over all? Have you bowed the knee to his lordship? If not, these verses are a rebuke to you. They're actually somewhat of an insult. The creation recognizes it. Why don't you? Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, A gracious mind will chide human nature for its strange insensibility. When the sea and the river, the mountains and the hills are all sensitive to the presence of God, man is endowed with reason and intelligence, and yet he sees unmoved that which the material creation beholds with fear. God has come nearer to us than he ever did at Sinai or to Jordan. For he has assumed our nature in Christ, and yet the mass of mankind are neither driven back from their sins nor moved in paths of obedience. In other words, if, if these inanimate parts of creation 
recognize the lordship and the supremacy of God, then we who have far more intelligence than them, we who have more revelation than them, we who are on the other side of Jesus and know that he's taken on flesh and know what he's done for us, we have no excuse. We have no excuse. And so we would all do well to emulate the example of the sea and of the river and of the hills and of the mountains. We can learn from creation. Tremble at his surpassing power over all creation. Finally, number three. Tremble at his supernatural provision in the lives of his people. Tremble at his supernatural provision in the lives of his people. Okay, in, in verse 7, the next verse, he answers the rhetorical questions that he asked in verses 5 to 6. And maybe you haven't noticed it so far, but the, the, uh, a direct reference to the name of God, to God himself, is not yet found in our psalm. And so there's a third-person pronoun used in verse 2, his, but the name of God is not mentioned yet. And so there's really been suspense building in the psalm. It's as though as the reader's reading it, they ought to be asking himself, well, well, who is it? Who made Judah his sanctuary? Who made Israel his dominion? Why? Who caused the waters to flee when they saw him? Who caused the mountains to skip about? Who? Who is it? And then verse 7 provides the answer. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, in other words, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. It's the God of Jacob. And as I mentioned earlier, this is the only imperative in this text. Okay, And it's an imperative not just given to creation, from verses 3 to 6, not just given to God's people, but it's an imperative given to the whole world, to the whole earth. It's given to all mankind. It's given to every single one of you, whether you're in Christ or not. You're commanded this morning to tremble at this all-powerful God, to behold his glory, to be in awe of him, and to tremble before him. You're without excuse. His power has been made known. His creation testifies to you every day of his existence and of his greatness. He's revealed himself to you through the Holy Scriptures. You're sitting under the preaching of his word right now. You have no excuse but to tremble before him. In the presence of his greatness, we must tremble. And of course, we know that a day is fast approaching when all the earth will tremble, when everyone will be forced to obey that command, whether they do so willingly or not, whether they do so in love or not. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and we will tremble before him. Hey, that day is coming, and so I need to ask you, are you ready for it? Have you bowed the knee to Jesus in repentance and faith? Have you trusted in his death and resurrection for your sins? And have you confessed him as your Lord and Savior? Have you been born again? Okay, that's the only way to be ready. And on that day when everyone will tremble, some will come and they'll bow the knee and they'll confess Jesus as Lord in reverent fear. And I hope that's what all of us will do. Out of love and adoration and worship for our Savior will bow in reverent fear and confess him as Lord. But the others will bow in terror fear, recognizing that their time is now up, that his patience has come to an end, 
and that only judgment and condemnation awaits them. And so they'll bow in terror and tremble before him in terror. And so the question is, which will you be? Will you bow in reverent fear and in love and in anticipation of dwelling with your Savior forevermore, or will you bow in terror fear, begging the Lord to show you mercy in that moment, but by then it will be too late? And so would you come to Jesus today? Would you come to Jesus today? Would you turn from your sins and trust in him and be saved? Finally, let's look at verse 8. The psalmist finishes this psalm. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. Okay, we see God's transforming power on display again in verse 8, just as we saw in verse 2. In verse 2, he transforms his people into uh, his sanctuary and his dominion. Here he transforms creation. A rock becomes a pool of water, and a flint, which is a type of rock, becomes a spring of water. And this verse, of course, refers back to when the Lord miraculously provided water from a rock for his people in the wilderness. He does this on two occasions. One in Exodus 17, verses 1 to 7, and another in Numbers 20, verses 2 to 13. The people of God are wandering in the desert, they're thirsty, and so he miraculously, supernaturally provides water. And he does so in the most amazing way by bringing water forth in the most unlikeliest of places. He doesn't lead them to a stream. He leads them to a dry, barren rock. And this is how he works. He puts his power on display to his people. Sometimes the Lord allows things to get pretty desperate before he finally shows up and he provides in the most unexpected of ways. And perhaps you know that to be true in your own life. You can think back of times when that's happened. Things are desperate and he shows up and he just supernaturally provides. God is the one who can turn rocks into pools. As one commentator put it, he's the one who transforms what is least promising into a place of plenty and into a source of joy. Okay, he can make water flow out of places that were previously dry and hard. And so in this final verse, we're reminded of the Lord's supernatural provision in the lives of his people. He provides for his people in the wilderness of this world. And so rather than worrying about the state of the economy or worrying about rising interest rates or worrying about how you can afford housing, not that those things are not important, but you need to take a step back in the midst of that and consider the way the Lord cares for and provides for his people. And let that, let that have a deepened sense of awe in you that you might tremble before him. And this will put things in perspective. And ultimately, verse 8, this verse points us to Jesus Christ, does it not? Because Jesus is the solid rock from which the streams of living water flow. Okay, Jesus is the one that we can daily come to for spiritual provision. He's our rock, but he's also our source of water, of living water that will quench the thirst of our souls. And he's our daily provision in the wilderness of this world. And so we need not look any further than him, that we might tremble at the Lord's supernatural provision. In the midst of the chaos and the tumult of this world, the call of this text is to simply behold our awesome God and then tremble in his presence. Consider his sovereign purpose in the salvation of his people. 
Consider afresh his surpassing power over all creation. And consider afresh his supernatural provision in the lives of his people. And then what? Tremble before him. Okay? And other things will take care of themselves as you seek to do that. Sometimes that's all the application we need. Psalm 114 then not only summarizes Israel's journey with God, but it summarizes ours as well. Israel's journey is our journey. Because God has led us out of bondage. He's demonstrated his power over evil forces in our lives, destroying our worst enemy. He's made us his holy dwelling place and his dominion. He's guiding us through the wilderness of this world, and he's making needed provisions along the way. He's bringing forth living water from the solid rock that is Jesus Christ, that we may come to him daily. And one day we too, just like the Israelites, we're going to cross that chasm and we're going to enter into the promised land. In studying for this sermon, I came across a poem, sort of a paraphrase of this psalm written by Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer. And so it's wonderfully written. I wanted to figure out how to incorporate it into the sermon. And I thought I'd close by reading this hymn, this psalm, a paraphrase by Isaac Watts. And as I read it to you in closing... Remember, our story is akin to Israel's story. We serve and we love the same God. When Israel, freed from Pharaoh's hand, left the proud tyrant and his land, the tribes with cheerful homage owned, their king and Judah was his throne. Across the deep their journey lay, the deep divides to make them way. The streams of Jordan saw and fled with backward current to their head. The mountains shook like frightened sheep, like lambs the little hillocks leap. Not Sinai on her base could stand, conscious of sovereign power at hand. What power could make the deep divide, make Jordan backward roll his tide? Why did ye leap, ye little hills, and whence the fright that Sinai feels? Let every mountain and every flood retire and know the approaching God. The King of Israel, see him here, tremble thou earth, adore and fear. He thunders and all nature mourns. The rock to standing pools he turns. Flints spring with fountains at his word. And fires and seas confess their Lord.